protesters don't stop when they get home and put their sign down. Then they get online and read about it and write off a missive about the coverage that they don't appreciate. But the early stages of these protests, and right now they're more, more interested in getting their message out. And so they want to talk to the reporters. They want to be covered. They want their point of view out there, however extreme it is. And I think it's incumbent upon all journalists, again, not to simply, this is not a just a spot news event. It, it's, it's one that has deep, very important context and it has to be put in some perspective to make it meaningful for readers. From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy and locations around State College, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. Today, we are going to uh, revisit some issues of federalism that we talked about last week with Charles Berrio, um, but this week we're going to do it through the lens of the protests that have been happening uh, throughout the country. Uh, we had one here in, in Pennsylvania on April 20th and other states as well. Joining us for the, the discussion today is Chris Fitzsimon, who is the director of State's Newsroom and organization of nonprofit newsrooms uh, in state capitals across the country. So these reporters have been uh, out on the front lines covering these protests, talking to the people who are organizing them, who are out there. So uh, I think he'll have a really interesting perspective. Yeah, Jenna, I'm I'm so glad that you were able to arrange this interview uh, because on the kind of federalism that I think the president is increasingly laying out for dealing with the coronavirus, state politics are going to be very, very important. We we talked about federalism last week, and I think more has come into a clear view about exactly how this is, the response is going to be shaped and along federal lines. We we know that that the less these kinds of policies are centralized in the national government and left to the state, then the more we will have a sort of patchwork or a kind of you know, mix and match set of responses in the states. And what's happening, I think, is what we might have expected. They're going to open up. They're going to open up more than the guidelines would recommend they open up. They've not had two weeks of declines, which is what you're supposed to have before you open up. And to do so in ways that uh, we simply do not have enough information to know what is going to be the public health implications of that. And as much information as we do have means it is at minimum. A significant yes. But, risk. but you know, one thing we do know, and I, I'm sure we'll talk about this more after the interview, because I expect it will come up. The fact is that people's experiences in different communities is quite different right now. We don't know how widespread this is because our testing is so far behind every other developed country in the world. So we we don't have a very clear sense of it, but we do know hospital admissions, we know deaths. So we have some idea that there are many places in this country for for whom coronavirus is a distant thing. Right. And at the same time, while they don't have any cases or don't know anybody or have any sense of a threat associated with the virus... They know that their business yes. is shut down. They know that that their um, precarious economic situation is is become suddenly much yeah, more. Precarious, yes, absolutely. Right? All right. Well, then I think we've sufficiently uh, you know set the table for uh, Jenna's interview. I look forward to to hearing uh, hearing what he has to say. Yeah. So let's go now to my interview with Chris Fitzsimon. 
This is Jenna Spinelli here today with Chris Fitzsimon. Chris, welcome to Democracy Works. Thanks for having me. So uh, excited to talk to you today about some of the protests we've been seeing at state capitals all across the the U.S. And I know the organizations that work with State's Newsroom are out there covering them. But um, before we we dive into that, can you just tell us for for listeners who might not be familiar uh, with with State's Newsroom uh, what your your organization is and kind of how it approaches its its news coverage. Sure. Thanks for uh, asking. States Newsroom is a, a national uh, nonprofit outlet. We have offices in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and Washington, um, D.C. And our uh, we exist because we think that uh, state government and state politics maybe have more direct impact on people's lives and are least uh, are covered less uh, than they should be. Uh, so it's an interesting correlation. I think they have more importance to our daily lives than maybe any other branch of government, and people don't generally pay enough attention to them. And at the same time, the traditional or legacy news media continues to shrink in state capitals. And so what we try to do is uh, shine a light on what's happening and uh, to try to uh, explain to people how decisions are made, how people in power make decisions, how people in power stay in power, uh, and what it means for everybody's life. And I can't think of uh, a more compelling time to be doing state journalism, state-based journalism, than in the middle of this uh, COVID-19 crisis we find ourselves in. You covered state politics for for a long time, and I think as we think about the the reopen insert state name here protests that have been happening in in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Ohio, Virginia, these places they're getting a lot of attention because people aren't supposed to be out right now. But you know, I'm I'm wondering how, and this I think also speaks to to the point of of state capitals not being covered as much. I mean, how common is it in normal times or in in pre-COVID times? How common is it to see protesters at at a state capital? Can can you give us a sense of, of what that landscape typically looks like? Yeah, I think it you know it uh, ebbs and flows. I mean, certainly in the last couple of years, we've seen teachers march in the tens of thousands in Phoenix and Raleigh and Atlanta and other places across the country. Uh, their individual issues often bring protesters to the Capitol. Uh, a lot of national commentators are equating sort of the Tea Party um, movement of to, after Obama's election, which, of course, was not an organic movement that just sprung out of the grass. It was well-funded by a, a certain segment of our political class trying to thwart the Obama administration's efforts on many fronts and, and re- reclaim power. So I think it, you know, we state capitals do see their share of protests. This is a fascinating one, though, as you mentioned, when people are literally risking their lives and the lives of others, whether uh, knowingly or unknowingly, uh, to appear at state capitals. And I've been fascinated by how they have evolved from their alleged uh, humble beginnings to become, uh, you know, in effect, Republican and and pro-Trump rallies for the most part. That uh, I'm sure that there are people there maybe who aren't Republicans and don't support President Trump. But for the most part, when you read the coverage, you talk to participants, you see the signs, you see the rhetoric, you see the social media uh, backgrounds of the folks who are organizing these things. There are some anti-vaccine people uh, who are involved, and uh, you know there are some of those on the left, but uh, anti-vax people. But for the most part, these are conservative folks. Uh, the, the gun rights groups are very active in North Carolina and uh, um, Michigan, Ohio, uh, Pennsylvania, and other places. So it, it's a it's in some ways similar uh, to the to the people who are behind the Tea Party uh, efforts, but with a much different point of view. 
and and actually think endangering themselves and others. Yeah, and and we'll we'll come come back to some of those points, but you you started to talk about the the not so humble beginnings of of these groups. So when when did this activity first come on to your radar to to your reporters' radar? I mean, Michigan is the first state that that I recall seeing one of one of these demonstrations happen. But you know, uh, where did it start, and, and and how did your your reporters start? start getting a sense that this was out there. Yeah, I think Michigan may have been the first actual demonstration that I r- recall, but you know, there obviously was one over the weekend in Arizona. North Carolina, we had our second one just uh, this this Tuesday. But I think you've started to see what it, when I started to see it is in the sort of the um, conservative slash libertarian think tanks that are part of the, whether it's the Koch empire or the DeVos folks in Michigan or the art Pope people in North Carolina or the you know, every state, the, the, the Arizona has its own, the Goldwater Institute, these sorts of folks were starting to write even, I mean, weeks ago about the need to reopen the government and that we can't all be sheltered in place because it's ruining the economy. And, uh, and the, the rhetoric was starting, as it always is, before you actually saw the activists on their side showing up. So I think we, it wasn't a surprise that, that these demonstrations started. I think the sort of the rhetorical ground has been, you know, being plowed, I would say, two to three weeks before we saw the first one in Michigan. Um, and then I guess the the organizing efforts on social media and other places then started. Um, and so it sort of came to fruition. And I think it's, you know, it's going to continue. There was a, some people on social media recently in North Carolina saying next week's is going to be even bigger. We're starting to see state legislators, members of Congress on the right starting to attend. So this is clearly something that they are trying to continue to grow. Although I do think anytime we talk about this, it's really incumbent upon everybody to point out this is a very small minority, certainly of the population. But even uh, when you read, no matter the, the, your polling source, the, the majority of Americans clearly would do not believe that we should reopen government immediately, that they're worried we're going to reopen it too soon, that they're worried about going to places where there are lots of people, that they are worried about their safety and the safety of their loved ones and their friends and their neighbors. So, you know, this is, a, I think, a narrow but loud political movement that does not reflect the sentiment in the states that, uh, that I'm aware of. Yeah. And, and how does that dynamic impact your, your decisions, your, your newsroom's decisions to cover these events? Well, I think it's always, you know, the, um, it's always an editorial decision about how much publicity to give these events that represent a narrow group of people or a, a small slice of America. On the other hand, when you have hundreds of people at the state Capitol with uh, carrying semi-automatic weapons and Confederate flags, you have to cover it. I think the important part is to put it, try, and we do, to try as much as we can to put this in context of the how many sort of folks they represent or what percentage, what slice of America they represent. And also, as much as we can, who's behind them and what the motives are. And one of the, I think one of the underreported aspects of this, and it's finally starting to come out, is I'm no fan of President Trump, but, uh, you know, it was just last week when he announced his phased reopening of America, for lack of a better word. And phase one was that states have to have 14 days of declining caseloads. Well, no state match, no state is having that yet that's having the protests. So literally, you have people with Trump signs demanding that state lawmakers and governors defy what President Trump has laid out as the plan to open up their states. So it's clearly not about the facts. It's clearly not about the science. 
because they not only are uh, opposing what public health professionals are saying, at least at this point, the White House's official position on how to reopen the government is not to reopen it immediately, as the protesters are often demanding in these state capitals. In some places, we're seeing legislators show up at, at, at these events. I mean, is, is this purely a political self-interest thing on their part? It's most likely that they're trying to shore up their base and they want to be uh, on the side, and I'm using quotation marks, and of, you know, of, uh, of personal liberty and freedom and constitutional rights and uh, of all the, the sort of the buzzwords that somehow the right has stolen from the left. I think I generally think most people are for freedom. I don't think that's, it should be a partisan word or liberty. Uh, but Congressman Dan Bishop uh, showed up in North Carolina and he claimed he was there for the people for the right to protest because uh, someone was arrested by, for protesting in North Carolina. The governor, as uh, in response, said he supported the people's right to protest if they, if they were doing it in a responsible way and keeping their social distance and not endangering themselves. It's fascinating to me also, there are a lot of fire Fauci signs that pop up at these rallies, even though he speaks from the podium with, you know, as part of the Trump administration at this point, it feels a little bit like, well, not a little bit, a lot like we're also getting into this uh, anti-science world that we all know from the hostility to confronting climate change and sea level rise and all the other issues where people uh, on the far right have been led to believe that science is it's somehow not in their best interest to follow, which has always been bizarre to me. Right. And I think there was maybe a, a hope at the beginning of, of the virus outbreak that maybe this wouldn't break this way, where we're seeing these repeated kind of partisan epistemic splits and, you know, how people believe science and facts or, or not versus who values conspiracy theories. Was that kind of an, an overly optimistic take <laughs> that this might be the thing that brings the country together in the end? Yeah, I think uh, in hindsight, it certainly was. But I shared your optimism at the beginning. And I thought even the conservative folks that I read and, and, and have been following, at least early on, did all seem to share the for a moment there. I think we had a moment when we all thought this is going to be a terrible hardship again, not uh, on all of us, on but on people who always struggle when we have disasters. Uh, whether it's a healthcare disaster or, or a natural disaster. But I, I do think there was that moment and it, it quickly sort of evaporated. In fact, we had conflicting signals and many times signals that sort of encouraged the sort of behavior that we're seeing now. And also uh, there are clearly conservative forces who are using this because they are, uh, Gretchen Whitmer is very popular in Michigan. Roy Cooper is very popular in North Carolina. Other Democratic governors are popular. They see this as an, a way to try to, to foment opposition to popular Democratic governors. But uh, to end on a semi-optimistic note, which is not my nature, <laughs> I do think the polls in America and the polls in these states still show that people do believe generally the science. They are worried about going back to work. Turning back to the the protesters, I mean, your um, reporters from your your newsrooms organizations have been out there talking to these folks um, and and covering them. Is your sense that they're cognizant of the fact that this is about more than just themselves? They could potentially be spreading the virus to to others or you know other things like that. So I think there it's a it's a mix. You know, there. I mean, I'm concerned about the economy. I think everybody's concerned about the economy. But the worst thing for the economy, of course, would be to go back to work too soon and have another giant outbreak and have more hot spots, and then we'd have no economy and more people would get sick and die. My sense of talking to the reporters and the coverage that we've done is the protesters sort of run the gamut. You know, there are people who show up at the 
at the events with masks on. So clearly they believe there's a danger to themselves and others. Uh, but there are people who show up to the to the events and say no vaccine and the pandemic is a fluke and the media is the problem. Or they'll say Jesus is my vaccine was one sign. So there there are all sorts of elements. It's a you know, it's a stew of people at these protests, most of whom are angry about one thing or another or are scared and worried. And, you know, all of us are scared and worried. Uh, but the, the solution isn't to demand that our to do unsafe things ourselves and to demand that our state leaders do unsafe things. Have we seen uh, evidence that, you know, these these protests and all this, this activism has caused governors to change their plans for reopening or to maybe reopen more quickly than they they had previously planned to? You know, I don't think so yet. I think that there there's the danger of that. But I think as long as the polling shows and uh, that that the majority of people in these states and in the country don't want to open too soon, that that's their primary worry, not not the fact that, um, you know, we're going to wait too long to reopen. Um, I do think that at this, you know, the, the my sense is that we haven't gotten to that point and I hope we don't get to that point. I think most governors realize what's at stake, that they're listening to the public health professionals. I know it's a, a somewhat of a broken record. I think some of the questioners now, some members of Congress have even starting to point out that the protesters are, are asking the uh, state governments to defy the Trump White House's own uh, phased out, phased opening. So I think uh, all that is contributing to uh, at least this point that these are just loud voices who are making the news, unfortunately, without context many times, uh, but that it's more of a publicity event or a news event than it is having a direct impact on policy. We had the Republican Speaker of the House in North Carolina, actually, uh, who's very sympathetic to all these, generally these points of view, says we need to be very careful and sort of gave a measured response. Uh, so even even some of the, uh, the Republicans who are in power on the state level, uh, I think they are also listening to experts because they're the ones that are actually managing this crisis day to day and have to see these death tolls and have to worry about their hospitals and their law enforcement officers and their healthcare workers and and manage the unemployment systems and all the rest of it. There's also a, a real, for the, the governors and the, the state legislatures, a real uh, economic issue here too, right? So they're, as all these businesses are closed, they're they're losing sales tax, they're losing money from, mm-hmm. from entertainment and all of these things. So uh, where does does that play in here, I guess, if if at all, the, the fact that is there is there any pressure on, on governors to get things moving more quickly to, to try to figure out what a, a balanced budget is going to look like, given that, that states can't carry budget deficits. Yeah, that's a great point. I should have brought it up on my own. That is the pressure, really, is that almost every state uh, has a, some balanced budget amendment. Some have more flexible ones than others. But for the most part, they do have to balance their budget, which is why in the Great Recession, the federal government gave states billions of dollars to help fill that hole because the federal government can borrow money and can try to keep the states whole so they don't have to make just draconian cuts to education and human services and public safety. There doesn't seem yet to be the appetite in Congress. The last version of the Relief Act that was just passed this week, of course, uh, and we have a reporter who covers Washington for us, but it was uh, obviously people now know that did not include any money for the states. So that is a major worry for governors, how they're going to handle their state budgets in the next couple of years. And this, uh, no matter when this virus lifts, the budget hole that will be created will be, uh, I think, big and last several years. And the battles will be not to balance these budgets on the backs of people who are always uh, already struggling, 
So I think that is a real tension that governors feel. And, I, you know, without without federal assistance, I think it's going to be very difficult for governors to keep keep their people safe and also keep their budgets in some sort of manageable level where they can uh, still provide services when this crisis is over. And so what what has the, the experience been for your reporters that are out there? I and mean, this is also often often a, a crowd that calls the media fake news and, you know, all of these sorts of things. So has has that element been there as, as your folks have been out covering these events? I think somewhat. But, you know, again, I think probably not quite as focused because there's not as, there's not one person at the podium like Trump screaming to turn around and look at the media and that they're all. Uh, you know, enemies of the people and all this horrible rhetoric that he uses about journalists these days. It's it's evident in, in the rhetoric, but I do think some of these these rallies for uh, not maybe not as certainly not. It's not like a Trump rally in that regard. The the rhetoric and the signs often blame the media, uh, but a lot of these people want to be in the media to spread their message. So at least at this point, it's sort of early in the protest movement. They're still, I think, the the ones who are leading it, especially want to use the media rather than bash it. They like to do both, obviously, but they are, they're trying to use the traditional media and our, I mean, all, all media uh, to get their message out. So I think our reporters haven't encountered maybe quite the level of hostility. And so you see that sort of bizarre alliance emerging at these things. And, you know, I don't know why you have to have several weapons on your hip and camouflage jackets and bulletproof vests when you're, when you're protesting these things either. So that it clearly is a coalition. And, you know, there are all sorts of odd, odd groups that are, have come together to do this who are hostile to the media. But so far, I don't think we've seen it rise to the level that is that is dangerous. Sure. So what what has the, the response been to your your organization's reporting of this? Are the, the people who show up to these events and, and they're the, those who kind of share that that media ecosystem? Are they seeing your stories? Do they feel like you're you're giving them a fair shake? Have have your reporters heard anything since since these stories have been have been running over the past week or two? Um, to, I, I mean, there's you know the the uh, the readership is certainly for all most media organizations is way up because people are very interested in this in these in the topic and they're uh, and they're at home and they have an opportunity to read more. But I think the response has generally been positive. You know, that we we always have hostile responses to commentary that point out some of the things that we've talked about in this interview. And that always increases when there are emotional and, um, you know, sort of, uh, the loud, the, the protests world, when you're covering protests, the, the protesters don't stop when they, uh, get home and put their sign down. Then they get online and read about it and write off a missive about the coverage that they don't appreciate. As far as the reporters themselves, I think that people do appreciate the coverage and the as I mentioned before, we're at the sort of uh, early stages of this. Uh, I hope it's not a long running movement, but the early stages of these protests. And right now they're more, more interested in getting their message out. And so they want to talk to the reporters. They want to be covered. They want their point of view out there, however extreme it is. And I think it's incumbent upon all journalists, again, not to simply, this is not a just a spot news event. It, it's, it's one that has deep, very important context and uh, it has to be put in some perspective to make it meaningful for readers. Yeah, and, and to that point about context, I mean, how how are your newsrooms thinking about how to cover this as it as it continues? Whether it's more rallies or or more activity online, what are you thinking about as this continues to evolve? Yeah, well, you know, we, each each state we talk to each state about that, and we uh, I think for the most part, I mean, we're not going to cover every protest as I mentioned as just a spot news event. We're not going to do a story saying X number of people were at the Capitol in Harrisburg or Lansing 
or Raleigh yesterday, and here's what they were saying. I think that uh, it will be what their demands actually would mean, what the public health people, what, what the impact of what they're demanding would be, and as importantly, what we know about who's organizing it, who's paying for it, what the partisan flavor of these things is and why it's happening in the national context and what the governors are actually doing, um, what's happening to the cases and the death tolls in our state and the people in prison and the people in nursing homes and all the people who are really struggling to deal with this, the people who are now uh, thrown into poverty or already in poverty who can't, who can't feed their families. Those are the stories that we care more about. And that this, these protests that represent a small sliver of America and our states are one aspect of one piece of it. Uh, and I think they always have to be treated that way. They're not an event unto themselves. Right. Well, that is that's a great uh, great point to end on there. Great reminder for everyone. Uh, thank you for for the work that that you and all of your editors and, and reporters are doing to help bring us this information. And thank you for joining us today to talk about it. Thanks very much for having me. Okay, we're back, and uh, that was a really interesting interview. I thought with uh, somebody who knows a lot about state politics and. I also think it's worth acknowledging just for a second as uh, that there are a lot of journalists out there right. who are doing some really good work these mm-hmm. days in dangerous, you know, dangerous circumstances. Right. And it is dangerous because... Because there's these, a virus out there. Right. And because these the people who are protesting at minimum think that the danger associated with the virus is less than the danger associated to their economic well-being. Yeah. So you know, it's, it's, it's a hoax. Yeah, yeah. He referred to this idea that a lot of them are anti-science. I, I have heard that in other media reports covering them. I mean, some of the signs clearly suggest they're not buying the science, and mm-hmm. you know, and and I think it's important to. I think that's very true, <laughs> but it's also important to note, as you were just uh, sort of suggesting there, that there are some real trade-offs here. I mean, if we just follow the science, I think we'd all be locked up in our houses for eighteen months. Well, waiting, you know, at least it took and, three years to come up with a measles vaccine. Course. Actually, I think it was four. Four years, regardless. right? It was four years to come up with a measles vaccine. Not like I knew this before the virus. Elected officials are going to have to make some very difficult decisions about how to trade off. I think the way to think of the trade off is in terms of risk. How much risk is a community, a state, a society willing to incur at the cost? of not having jobs, not having economic activity, and quite frankly, not having enough government support to back it up. Well, I think there's two risks, right? One okay. is economic. And, you know, what is the legitimate level of opening that right. can keep the economy going and still keep risk low enough? But the other risk is, is to the American tradition of liberty. Right. Because people, public health people will tell you the one thing that uh, there was, I can't remember who said it, but he said, if I could do one intervention, it would be that whenever anybody was diagnosed, they would be quarantined individually. They well, would like in China. Their family, they would. Exactly. And yeah. there's no way that children um, in China were it, moved to quarantine. Precisely. For and so there's, there's there's no way that our society would tolerate that. This reminds me of the book we 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 brought the authors on. Uh, a lot of people are saying there is this kind of uh, assumption or presumption that uh, there's a hidden agenda that people are not 
um, speaking the truth. They're not out for your own interests. They're using every opportunity to undermine your standing and advance their own. And so this is just yet another example of that, right? That that this is this is there may be a virus out there, right? There may be something out there that's dangerous. But what's happened is that this the government is using and and the left is using this opportunity to advance a, you know, an anti-liberty pro-socialism agenda. And and so that is what they see themselves as fighting. And that is the only way that you can see them in in as echoing something like Rosa Parks, which is what yeah. somebody said. Yeah, I agree with everything you're saying there. I think it's really important because it highlights the extent to which, uh, you know, partisan electoral considerations are, are entering into this. But, but also the idea that the rallies are very small and unrepresentative. But it's also the case that sometimes a highly vocal, passionate, intense minority can have more political impact than a relatively quiet, passive political majority. This is not the first issue we've seen that on. And the political majority on this, if they really are in favor of social distancing and waiting until things are safer, as polls seem to be showing, can't protest because they think they should be social distancing. Right. This is this is a... uh, uh a well-established point in, in democratic politics, democratic small D of just uh, the power of the single issue voter. Right. Yep. And, and I'll tell you something that's really close to the, very similar to with the tea party uh, where there was some excellent research done by Theta Scotch who was, was on our show a couple of right. months ago, you know, and the role that Fox news played in promoting the tea party rallies that then had enormous political repercussions in the 2010 election. And we're seeing it again. These rallies have had disproportionate positive news coverage from Fox News. They've been promoted by the White House themselves. So even though they might be small and unrepresentative, oh, and and almost as soon as the rallies begin, the governor of Florida and Georgia appear to almost respond to them by starting to open up their states. You know, so I think it's incorrect to say that they're small and insignificant. They may be small, but they're going to be significant. If you say that this is simply a product of the Koch brothers, then you are uh, necessarily denigrating the actions of the individuals who are showing up. You're, you're effectively calling them dupes. Yeah. And rubes. And I and I don't think th- I, I think you need to start with the presumption that these people um have a a a point of view that um, that they want to present. Now it could be wrong, and and let's face it, in terms of you know how they're responding to the public health emergency, I think they are wrong. But that's different than yeah. saying they're idiots. You know, yeah. and and let's face it, there are you know there are you know consistent with how we tend to do things in the United States, there are good ideological and, and policy reasons. For many, for you know, many of the business community to push for opening, because what I think this is about is they want to make the determination about what their employees are doing, not state governments. Right. They want and- to decide when their employees come back, and they want to decide the conditions under which their employees are coming back. Their concern or their uh, evaluation of this risk risks on both sides is different 
from those of somebody in New York City right now. And right. it is completely legitimate for that argument to be made. It is nonsense to say, give me liberty or give me COVID. I mean, that is a crazy thing to say. I, I, mean, I was really struck that there was no effort to break these up because you don't break up protests in the United States, right? It's a risky right, thing right, to do. Right. But on the other hand, they're doing it in defiance mm-hmm. of the state governor's orders. Now, with right. no state that I noticed did the state governors take any actions or the cities to break them up or force them to socially distant or anything. It was just, but it's a public health threat by having them do this. Yes, uh, but it was also an extremely effective protest. <laughs> yeah. And those things may be less separable than we would like to believe. I'll take that point. Anyway, all right. Uh, all right, let's call it a day. Yeah, at least. <laughs> All right. Well, um, thanks to to Chris for uh, coming in. Thanks to Jennifer for the interview. And thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Chris Beam. And I'm Michael Berkman. This has been Democracy Works Coronavirus Edition. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Penn State, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Episodes are engineered by Andy Grant and Craig Johnson, edited by Chris Kugler, Jen Bortz, and Mark Stitzer, and reviewed by Emily Reddy. Our interns this semester are Nicole Grayson and Stephanie Crane, two seniors in the Donald P. Belisario College of Communications at Penn State. Democracy Works is part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts all about civic engagement, civil discourse, and democracy. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about our member shows and access deep dive playlists on topics like gerrymandering and money in politics that are curated from across the network. If you like what you heard today, please leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week.